And we're live. So hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Colm O'Shea, introduce himself. So can you tell us, uh, our viewers and listeners, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm down in my own basement right now because I have four young children and they're all being put to bed right now. So I'm trying to be as quiet as I can as I uh, go on this weird journey with you. Um, let me see. I'm trying to figure out what's the most relevant information to share with you because uh, my writing has gone a lot of different directions, kind of all at once. Uh, so I, primarily, I see myself as an academic. I teach writing at New York University. Um, I teach essay writing, not, not fiction writing. And uh, I love that job because it's kind of like uh, an intellectual workout for the students. They have to figure out how to generate ideas and then pick a fight with those ideas and then watch the ideas kind of enter into a trial with each other. And I think that that's a really cool thing to do with writing. And that's my primary engagement with writing. And so for me, writing poetry or fiction or really kind of anything creative is my reprieve from this kind of gladiatorial combat of ideas in the essay realm. So in a way, um, essay writing for me is my primary mode of writing and my bread and butter and fiction writing is my break from that. That works. All right. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So we were actually introduced to, to column through a uh, friend of the show and former guest, Miss Alma Alexander. So after her interview, she uh, had told us that there was somebody else that we needed to interview who was a new author. She said nothing but good things about you and your debut novel. So, you know, we set that up and the rest, as they say, is history. But this is the Blasters and Blades podcast, so we can't let you out without starting the interview with the religion question. So, sir, Star Wars, Star Trek or Firefly? Oh, jeez. I can narrow it down to two because I, you know, I like Sweden and respect them a lot, but the Star Wars and Star Trek universes are both really important to me, but for really different reasons. Um, Star Trek is, you know, the most optimistic kind of model of reality I can think of because it's about disciplined people um, entering into the, the, the ultimate spirit of exploration. And they just seem so competent and confident and intelligent. And the way they approach every problem is so organized and the way that they pull on all their different uh, strengths. I just find that like the ideal model. And even as a little kid watching that, I, I just wanted to be an astronaut watching that because I just thought if that's the level of discipline that human beings can achieve and they can become that organized, um, that, that for me, you know, and Star Wars by contrast is, uh, is really closer to that fantasy ele- element where a little part of you as a small child thinks, maybe I do have some kind of, metaphysical power or force within me and maybe if i learned to harness it i could uh i could elevate myself to some other form of being like some quasi jedi level and i think you know people carry that around with them in their back pocket kind of throughout their lives so i i'm, I'm hard pressed this is kind of weaseling out of your question but i i'm i'm hard pressed <coughs> to well you know if we're being entirely honest here and this is the trust circle dear listener uh, given that you're from Ireland, I don't know if you're from Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom or the Republic of, 
But either way, we thought maybe when we were prepping this, you might say, neither. I want Doctor Who, because that's really big in the United Kingdom. So yeah, 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 I expected, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I I had a friend who was from, his, his family was English and Northern Irish and was huge into British sci-fi and loved that stuff and introduced me uh, in particular to uh, Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's yeah. Galaxy, which was profoundly important to me because I never realized that you could splice kind of absurdist comedy into pretty serious sci-fi. Um, so that was kind of mind-blowing to me. And, and you know, if, if I were honest, I, I think that the main uh, drive behind a lot of my fantasy writing or speculative fiction is uh, is very much Douglas Adams, you know? And you can always tell the discerning readers when you ask them the secret of the universe if they know. Exactly. <laughs> so, all right. And because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time? Oh, it, well, it has to be Lord of the Rings. I mean, my dad was reading Lord of the Rings apparently when I was a baby. Like when he was looking after me and he was reading Lord of the Rings. And I, I think some of it seeped in by osmosis. I've been reading a lot of Tolkien lately, uh, not as fiction writing, but as essay writing about fiction and about fairy tales in particular. He wrote this one essay called, I think it's called On Fairy Tales. And he, he's writing it in 1939. So like World War II is about to break out. And he's thinking weirdly about the relationship between language and consciousness and how fairy tales are like this weird um, neuro-linguistic portal into the deep structures of consciousness. So that uh, if you read fairy tales properly, because he, he has this sense that adults of his time are, they've just dismissed fairy tales. Fairy tales are just junk that you give to kids and then you, you grow up and you, you throw them away. Um, but he is saying, no, 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 if you pay attention to fairy tales, you'll understand everything about the nature of language and the nature of consciousness. Because if you read fairy tales properly, they'll tell you what the words heart and home mean and what fire and bread and stone and gold and treasure mean and all these other like really deep dreamlike uh, archetypal uh, concepts. And so I was reading that and kind of thinking, yeah, I think that that's the most important thing about the deep fiction, the stuff like the Tolkien-esque fiction is he's a student of language and he says, you know, what I did was I started to construct all these different languages like Elvish or um, whatever the dwarves, all these different geographies and they have their own languages and a world evolved and then the story evolved and just moved to the world. So to me that that's almost like a transcendental view of language and that's more profound than anything else I can think of really when it comes to fiction. I can see that. The one um, sort of more amazing thing when you see um, Tolkien and I think it was the Inklings was the people he was writing with in that, at the time is if you realize what they went through in the trenches of World War One, and then yeah. you reread once you know that and you reread their writings and you can just you can almost feel like, like the PTSD screaming out of the stories um, and I, obviously they, they called it shell shock then but you can definitely see the echoes of what was and what they experienced if you know what you're looking for and, and maybe that's a bias because you know I've been there myself but I, I definitely think like knowing where they were when they came up with these ideas of like loyalty and friendship and, and the way he told essentially a modern fairy tale 
um, like it, it starts to make even become even more profound to you, I think. Yeah, and Roald Dahl, Dahl was an RAF pilot at a really young age, I think like 16 or 17, and you know, got shot down and saw a lot of action. And his fairy tales, some are short stories for adults, some are obviously more absurd and for children, but it is always around this idea of a kind of almost like a metaphysical evil that he's seen, you know, he's kind of been there and he's seen something really dark. And so even when he's writing for children, there is this sense that the darkness is quite real and you could find it, it could end up in your world at any moment. And, um, uh, and that drives a really powerful fiction that um, seem, maybe, maybe I'm stepping out of place here by saying it, but I don't really feel it so much when I, when I interact with fiction that's been written in recent years, maybe I'm tarring myself with the same brush here. People that haven't touched that kind of intensity and don't know what it feels like, th there can be a slight uh, hollowness to the writing. Yeah, I think people don't realize that's the other part of it is is how what a transcendental time like World War One was. It was the where sort of humanity went on a crossroads when it comes to combat, where the notion that combat could be like courtly, uh, honorable, whatever, and then the uh, reality of modern warfare and modern weapons and how that sort of made that impossible. Um, I mean, just the invention of the, the machine gun and what that did to the idea of combat. I mean, like you saw all of that happen at World War One. The idea of the Geneva Conventions came out of the horrors of World War One, And so when you realize that some of those people had been in those trenches for years, um, like it, it definitely affected things. That's what most people don't realize is it didn't just change the geography, you know, with Matt, uh, with, you know, digging holes and, and trenches, they changed the geology of the land. They dropped so much lead in certain areas. It changed the mineral content that you could still trace today. Wow. I, so I'm a history nerd. I'm a classically trained historian. So like, I find that fascinating. And then when you superimpose that on everything that they wrote that came out of that era, and it just gives it so much more, I don't know, so, something more to it yeah so. it's, every every war always seems to add something enormous to our intellectual history and i can't remember who said it something like everything is wonderful about war except all the death and destruction you know uh that you add like branches of mathematics and you find out a whole new era of technology and obviously the fiction radically alters um you know your culture trans figures itself after every major war. And um, it's strange because we're living on the brink of a potential third world war. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen throughout uh, Central Europe. But it's fascinating to think that in my lifetime, I, I thought that I grew up just at the end of the Cold World War and I thought I was free and clear. And now the threat of nuclear war is hovering over my head again. And I find myself wondering how will this affect a whole new generation of writers? So we're we're recording this in 2022, uh, right as the uh, Top Gun Maverick, the Top Gun sequel is out, and that's the running joke that's running around. Is Top Gun is is topping the movie charts? Uh, a remake of a 1980s music song is topping it, and we're also on the brink of another world war. So they're like, <laughs> you know, all the similarities between now and the 80s, they're sort of stacking them up. And I'm like, we did it once the first time, wasn't that cool? Let's move on. We'll try something different, hopefully. Yeah, we don't want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially the hairdos from the 80s. I mean, come on, people. What were you thinking? But um, 
Um, so, you know, we like both the fantastical and the scientific here at the Blasters and Blades. So what was your first love? Do you think it was sci-fi or fantasy? That, God, I don't know because um, I almost feel like I like a split personality on some levels because when I was a kid, the stuff that I loved about science fiction and the stuff that I loved about fantasy really had very little overlap. Like I was very much drawn to the harder end of science fiction. Like, and I, in fact, I, I wrote a short story recently for the um, Center for Quantum Computing in Singapore University. And it's just a really short story about quantum computing and AI. And so there's this like hermetically sealed compartment just for hard sci-fi, which is just how would something work as a mind experiment? And then the fantasy thing is this totally different, fairly unrelated, um, frequency where you're kind of going, yeah, what if you didn't have to think about the reality, the, the, the physical laws that you live in, how much pleasure could you derive from constructing brand new evils and brand new thrills out of that other world? So um, I don't know. I, I find them very hard to to talk about um, and pick a, pick a winner. But uh, I guess God, it's such a rambling answer to such a straightforward question. It's okay. I mean, you you, you gave the the meaning behind it. You think it's uh, they're so interwoven you can't you can't separate them in your head. That works. So, what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Was it you know your dad reading Lord of the Rings? Was it watching it on TV, playing games? Where do you where do you think you discovered the genre? My, I definitely consumed more science fiction and fantasy. I grew up in rural Ireland, and a lot of my um, friends were just like ran like most people the random kids that lived anywhere near your house and we spent an awful lot of time just running around in woods and fields and pretending to hunt each other basically and <laughs> i was consuming way more books than they were uh, but they were consuming a lot of movies and one of the things that i liked about our gameplay was we would just stick everything together so that if people wanted to be wizard or space invaders or ghostbusters it didn't matter everything would just we would navigate and negotiate, and we would end up playing this mishmash of genres that don't fit together, and that purists would be totally offended if they saw us sticking together. And that really stuck with me, this idea that, oh, you can you can put anything together with anything else, and as long as it's got this energy and this kinetic drive, it works, you know? I'm not a purist. I'm very Catholic in that respect. <laughs> That's one thing, it's universal. I've talked to, through this podcast, people from all over the world. <clears throat> you know, from as far, well, actually, I don't know how you do it, but like I, we've, we've interviewed people from Sri Lanka, from, you know, the frozen wastes of Canada, you know, like we, we've talked, I guess that's not all over, but I mean, the, the gist is I've talked to people from all over the parts of the globe. And when you talk to them about being a child and running around like that same, like it might not be the woods, maybe it's the rainforest or whatever, but there's something universal about boyhood, about running around and trying to, you know, play war, play whatever, like that always is fascinating that for all our cultures might be different there's some similarities honestly i think that you know whenever i'm writing i can't do that anymore for better or worse i, I can't play make-believe in that way because i'll just feel foolish but i think on some level fiction writing for me is trying to get back to that level of intensity where i'm hiding and i think something is about to get me and that feeling of um, intense engagement like i'm really really alive i'm not 
I'm not distracted. I'm 100% where I am doing what I'm doing. I try to create that experience for my characters. And um, yeah, I guess that, that my fiction is almost like a substitute for that kind of play now in adult. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it about the genre of speculative fiction, that umbrella genre that you love? It's fundamentally mischievous. Like, I feel like there's a lot of genres that are very kind of, they're more attractive to more rule-following types. Like, um, if you're going to write a, a, pre, a precinct drama or like a detective story or whatever, I don't mean to shit on the detective genre in particular, it's kind of arbitrary, but it, it is a bit more template -y. Like, there's a sense that you have a contract with your reader and your reader kind of knows what they want and you're giving them a variation on this very specific experience that they want to have. Um, and I, what I like about speculative fiction is it kind of says, I'm really not promising you anything. You're just going to have to take on faith that this is a ride worth taking and anything could happen to you. Like this could just go hard left without any warning into a totally different realm that you didn't expect. And I want that as a reader or a viewer. And I want to surprise myself when I'm writing. And speculative fiction to me is the genre beyond any other that I can think of that can do that because it's just so vague about what it's saying it's going to do, you know? Okay. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you writing stories in this space? So how'd you I, go from reader to writer? Yeah. I went from reader to drawer first. I mean, as a kid, I, I spent most of my time drawing images of stuff that I was reading or, or fantasizing about. And I spent a lot of, I spent so much time drawing. I actually thought, up until the age of 16 or 17, that I was going to be an animator. And, um, and I transferred to a school that didn't have an art program. And the one animation studio in Ireland, Sullivan Bluth, um, shut down. So it just seemed like that that wasn't on the cards. And I just pivoted into writing. And I'm glad I did because, um, because I love it. I think there's something that can happen in, in the written word or the spoken word that the reader's mind or the listener's mind can create their own images. So you have this like unique relationship with them where you're almost giving them a prompt and then their imagination fills in the empty space. Whereas when you animate something or film something, you're doing a lot more heavy lifting for them and they become a lot more passive. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm glad I don't have any serious regrets, but um, I mainly, I still visualize very much what I'm doing and speculative fiction again is very, very vivid and very visual and um and a lot of my characters i've noticed now I've, I've written a bunch of short stories and uh they're very um i don't want to say cartoonish but they're very weird and kind of garish and they're almost like caricatures so i can actually see the visual background my, all my years of drawing is coming out of my writing um yeah i guess that's the stepping stone is reading and viewing drawing and now, later in life, writing. I never made it past stick figures, so yeah. But I get it, you know, like you, you come at it sort of flanking the idea. But uh, so many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So do you feel like there were any formidable moments that have shaped you as a storyteller? Hmm. Yeah. Um, there, <clears throat> uh, getting beaten up getting beaten up uh, by gangs and stuff. Like I, I didn't grow up in a particularly dangerous or violent place, 
but it was peripheral to some violent and dangerous places. And, you know, I've been uh, assaulted a few times, mainly as a teenager. I think it's par for the course. And it's like nothing draws your attention to the fact that you're an animal with a nervous system than violence. So I think that uh, violence kind of is a big driver behind a lot of my work. I think about it a lot. I, I did a lot of martial arts as a result of that. And I, I think a lot about the the reality of just being a physical being that's frail and that lots of things can go wrong for. And I think it makes every scene more intense and more urgent. And the other major thing that's happened to me is, um, I guess, experimentation with psychedelia. That idea that you can radically alter your consciousness and you can find yourself in a totally different reality, really. Like, you know, you can you can touch that archetypal place where Tolkien says the fairy tales come from. And it's real. It's a real place. And you can go there and you can see ancient forces and beings you don't fully understand. And between those two things, like the hyper-reality of violence and the surreality of the psychedelic experience, those two extreme holds, I would say they're my the things that I navigate through when I'm writing. That makes sense. I mean, some of the um, some of the most iconic, you know, we'll take John Wayne, for instance, Marion, whatever his last name was, I don't remember. Uh, yeah. Like one of the reasons he got into yeah. becoming the, the person we later knew who he was because he was bullied as a kid and he didn't want it, didn't want that anymore. So I can yeah. see how, I mean, obviously we don't encourage bu bullying and, you know, you don't want it to happen, but when it does happen, you could definitely see how that could shape you into becoming something more than, or if, if you couldn't do it physically yourself, writing about other people who, who you could wish you could be, I guess. So or that, that resonates. Yeah, that works. Um, so transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about things from the fan angle. I know this is your first, you know, fiction novel, but you've written nonfiction essays and, and poetries. So has anybody ever asked you for your autograph yet? Um, no, I, I have students. So I've been interviewed by my students before. And uh, I think at least one of them was doing it purely because he had to learn how to interview people. And it was like a class project, but uh, it was flattering nonetheless to be, to have your mind um, probed a little by curious minds wanting to know what is it like to, to, to commit this much to writing, you know, to, to spend as much time as you do thinking about how to convey concepts, images, emotions on the page. And being interviewed is, is a real pleasure because you get to think out loud and figure out what it is you value, why you do what you do, how you do what you do. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to those students for asking me to talk about it. And uh, actually I'm grateful to you to be talking about it right now. Yeah, that's the one thing that surprises me. So I've done, like, this is, we started this podcast in 2017. Uh, and, be, you know, we, we were the, the sci-fi shenanigans, and then we rebranded to do Blasters and Blades. And so I've done hundreds of interviews. Like, this is episode 159 since we rebranded, and we were at 180 at sci-fi. So I've done lots of hours of interviews. And I've been interviewed a few times myself, and it's a lot different to be on the other side of the microphone, as it were. It's a lot more stressful. And I listened because I edited, you know, my own interview. We had a guest interview come and interview me on one of my projects. I'm like, man, I sound like a moron. So every time <laughs> I get somebody that comes on and like they're smooth sounding, and I'm like, okay, that's impressive because you know you've been on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> and that's the other <laughs> thing I notice is some of these questions, like, oh, you know, what what 
you know, work of fiction was transformative for you? What was your first memory? Like those questions, every time we, we interview someone, I think, what was mine? And I remember a different one every time. And I couldn't tell you which one was the real one, but ask me any day and I'll give you a different answer. Cause there's, you know, that moment of time where so much is, is affecting you as a kid where, where you're being changed. So like, I, I get it. It's, it's stressful. For oh, it's what, crazy. What you're doing. You know, I often feel like there's some sort of crappy press secretary, you know, presidential press secretary, just giving answers. And like, we have no idea if what the thing is saying is true or even remotely accurate. It's just like the first idea that came into this entity's head and, and set it out. So I'm sure if we, if we played this again in another parallel universe, I'd probably be giving radically different answers to you too. You know? It helps if I unmute myself. That's part of the fun, though, is you never know what answer you're going to get because, because you know, the more you think about it, like, you know, you remember all these different moments in time. And then anyway, so this is the part, column where we talk about uh, everything you have written. I, I know this is your first fiction novel, but you've written other stuff. So can you tell us about your body of work for people that might be interested? Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I started writing for fun when I was seven. And um, I noticed that, like, as soon as I had any free time at school, they hated school. I, I, I really, I, I never had the homework done. I, I just couldn't concentrate on the place. But I noticed that I was always drawing and I was always writing. And I started writing things, which I later found out one would call poems. So I'd say primarily my first experience of writing is mainly poetry. And I've had a lot of poems, individual poems published. Um, but what I would like is to collate them, put them in some sort of collection and have them published as a book because this, you know, I'm 44 now, so I've been writing poetry for a really long time and they're just diffuse and just spread out all over the world. And I feel like they're all like orphans. And what I want to do is to build some kind of home and keep them all together in a book. So my first part of call, I suppose, after uh, I take care of the launches of these books this summer is to try and focus maybe a little bit more temporarily on getting a book published of poetry. Um, I've written some short stories. I've written some articles. Um, mainly about um, film and philosophy and metaphysics, things like that. And I'm really interested in the concept of play. So, you know, I've got a podcast and a um, website that I share with a movement coach who's, we're, we're thinking about the value of play, physical play. Um, so we have writings on that website too, if anyone wants to check that out. Um, yeah, you know, I got a monograph coming out on, the sacred geometry in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake that's coming out this year. But absolutely nobody is going to read that book except academics. Like it costs like $150, <laughs> something like that. It's crazy. So, uh, yeah. Stay that's tuned. The for that's the problem. That since I'm not in college anymore, some of those interesting books that I would love to read, you can't get because you don't have access to those academic libraries anymore in JSTORs uh, and on all the the cool things. But um, yeah, I think everybody that grows up, you know, did you read Shel Silverstein as a kid? Yeah, yeah. My, my daughter, my 10 year old daughter is reading him a lot at the moment. She started memorizing his poems because she noticed. And so, that. And so did I. So I had decided that I was going to try it too. And then my first proper attempt at actual writing, because like I tried to write a novel in middle school and it was like five pages of setup where you're describing this world and it was epic. And then I got bored with it and I tried to end a novel in one paragraph. So, I mean, it was, it was horrific. I hope my mom burned it. Um, that and then when I was a kid, I, I would start writing a novel and I would get caught up on the cover and just obsess over the cover and I would never even start writing the book. 
<laughs> and then, then when I got to middle uh, high school, I was in the honors program and I'm doing, you know, you're reading like the epic poems, Beowulf, Gilgamesh, all the things. And I'm like, I could write that. So I tried to write an epic poem. And um, I, I, I hope she didn't keep that, but it was, I can't imagine it was very good. Like I have vague memories of it. So like, you know, there's, there's value in learning poetry. If nothing else, it teaches you like how to pick the right word. And sometimes like there's value in, in the way a sentence reads as opposed to just the content of the sentence, but how you re say it. Yeah. Um, like that, that's, you know, there's value in that, even in this sort of bullet point digital age where we've sort of gone backwards with text messaging, where it's almost like the telegraph again on, on the way people write, you know, like shorter sentences, the, the less flowy. So I find, I, that, I find by the way, that if, if someone were to tell me, let's say, I, you know, I, I was growing up, um, Let's say I was seven years of age again, and someone said, you know, in the future, uh, people will be extraordinarily time-strapped and they, their, their attention will collapse. And they'll communicate a lot in really short messages. What do you think will be the, the leading art form of the day? And I would have just guessed poetry. And it's definitely not the case, you know. Like, um, I don't understand why that art form has died a death like it's it couldn't be less relevant to most people's lives now i know there are people out there i know i personally know a lot of great poets and i know that there are people out there that love poetry but no one can deny that it's a deeply deeply maligned and forgotten art form and i find that inexplicable because a well-written poem compresses so much wisdom into such a short space i just i can't understand why poetry is so unimportant I don't know. Somewhere along the lines, I think, I think public schooling, and you know, I, I'm speaking specifically as an American who went through American public school. It's almost like the teachers reveled in making you read the most miserable stuff, and, and you made a generation after generation of kids hate reading. And so, I, there's some there's value in some of the classics, and I, I love them. I've read them. I've got some of them in hardcover. But I also think there's value in teaching kids the joy and passion of reading. And so making it relevant to them first before you start forcing all the, you know, more esoteric stuff down their throat. Sure. Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, look at probably the poems they read in school. And it was just like, eh, well, I can't understand where you come from. My, my mom's an English teacher and she introduced me to uh, the war poets, like the First World War poets. Like, yeah. You know, uh, Owens and the like. And... It blew me away. Like I, I didn't understand how profound and impactful and emotional and clever, actually, um, and devastating and ironic poetry can be until I read those war poets. But I think it was like the last generation of great war poets. And from that point on, it just, we just, I, maybe it was just simply a fact, a function of the fact that we had more recording devices. And when we think about the Second World War, we think about like footage, newsreel. Right. Uh, things like that like we don't kind of feel the need for the poetry but th those those trench poets so some of the uh, the most profound modern poetry but we don't think that that's modern poetry we just kind of isolate into well it's war poetry but it's not it's I, I think some of it is you almost need space to be bored to develop your imagination and so many people these days are glued to electronics and they started with like, you know, Nintendo, Xbox, Atari, whatever. And then now you get smartphones and they carry it around in their pocket. And it's done a lot of good things that technology has. 
but nobody just sits around in their own head and wonders what if like that. I mean, can you imagine like when we were kids, we'd, you know, how many times did you lay on your back, stare at the sky and see the clouds and like tell yourself a story, right? Well, normal people did. I didn't. Uh, when you're colorblind, you don't see regular clouds unless it's a yeah. storm cloud. But like that, but that concept of that imagination and like, there's nothing going on. You can either sit there and whine and be bored or you can entertain yourself. And I think in that act of entertaining yourself, you sort of build those creative muscles. And I think the generations that wrote poetry had that in spades. So it was something that was out of the ordinary and the lyrical nature of poetry sort of made it stand out, like made it different than just the, the humdrum, right? So I think, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, going even further back, I was reading, um, it was a letter that, you know, the, the artist MC Escher, the guy that does these impossible mm -hmm. worlds where you can kind of see a guy constantly walking up the same staircase, all these yeah. kind of magical art. Um, he was writing to a friend and he was saying, oh, I'm, I'm in France at the moment and I'm, I'm seeing these caves and the paintings inside are maybe 70,000 years old. And there's this huge bull and it's like 20 feet long. And whoever was in here painting it with a little light, like some sort of torch, they probably couldn't have seen the end of the bull where they were painting the head. But some great drive made them go into this dark space and paint that energy, paint the bull on the wall because they just had to. And I think that what you're saying is profoundly true. We don't need to paint the bull anymore. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I think, like I said, there's value in, in time in your own head, but we might be boring everyone. You and I are interested in this stuff and I don't know that everyone else is. So while uh, all those essays and talking about poetry is fascinating to me here, uh, we're here today to talk about claiming the wake. Is that how you say it? Claiming the wake, like, yeah. Okay. So where did you get the premise for this story? How'd you come up with the idea for it? Um, well, it's a mishmash of things because on the one hand, it's it's a kind of acerbic but loving recollection of what it's like growing up uh, near fairly tough uh, kind of working class Cork guys. But then also um, my fascination with artificial intelligence and virtual reality. And I just I figured no one is quite putting these two worlds together. What will happen if I, I stick these things together? And um, I think the main reason I wrote it is because I had my first kid. We just, my wife and I had our first kid. And I am. Um, Congratulations. Oh, no. I, I wrote it 10 years ago. Oh. Um, <laughs> we had our first kid 10 years ago. And I, um, I, I wasn't, I, I think I went through some sort of crisis. Like I wasn't sure what the hell I was. And I just started writing this book as a way to teleport myself back in time, back into my back into my adolescence and back into being in Ireland and back into kind of not knowing what was around the corner. And it worked, it was like alchemy. I think it, that was the thing, it was like the crisis of becoming a parent made me teleport back into being a kind of an adolescent and writing this adolescent coming of age story. Um, I think that's where it came from really. Okay. So have you gotten to the point of parenthood where you've had to punish your kid for making you sound like your parents? Like, you know, leave the, turn the light off, you know, whatever, all the, all the fun stuff. Punish. Well, I have four kids now. So it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning so many different plates. Well, to be more accurate, my wife is spinning the plates and I'm going to help you. <laughs> out. Um, but uh, when we had 
kid number four, something, some switch went off in my head and I went, I've got to, I've got to get my acting gear. I've got to start doing the things that I really, really want to do. Because if I don't, I'm going to blink and my kids will be out the door. They'll all be grown up and I'll have missed my life. I, I won't have done the things I wanted to do. And the thing I've always wanted to be as an artist, I, I always wanted to be a writer or an illustrator or both. And, um, and it kind of woke me up and I, I got this novel that I'd written 10 years ago about a respiratory pandemic during a respiratory pandemic. And I said, now is it's time. So I, uh, having that four kid kind of woke me up, kind of slapped me awake. And, um, and everything has happened since then. I also dredged up my thesis, which I wrote even further back. I wrote it like when I was 25 or something. And I just sent that off to a major academic publisher and that worked too. So I don't know if, if there's a secret to success for me, it's something like run out of free time and realize you have to do what you want to do right now. And don't make any further excuses and don't hide. Just do exactly what you want to do immediately. There's no time. There is no tomorrow. So what was your, uh, what was your uh, thesis about? Um, it was about sacred geometry and uh, finance. Oh, okay, that's the one. That's the one. Okay. Yeah, so it's right. I mean it's not exactly a, it's not a fun read, but uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed reading. It took me five years to figure out how to read Finnegan's Wake, and then it finally clicked that you don't learn how to read it. It's basically a network of games, and you play them. Okay, well that sounds fascinating. But we're going to take a moment while we pause so we can shamelessly shill for the man. Well, hello, all you beautiful chicks and dudes of all sorts. This is Suave Rob Suarez, the bitchin' double-X daredevil star of Suave Rob's amazing ass-saving association, here with another ass-saving tip, totally free from me to you, to help you save your ass so you can live to sit another day. Now, back in the day when dudes were dudes, this one dude, Benchmark Bob, buddy of mine, he had this little accident. He tried frying up an egg when he was totally hammered. So he washed a pan, then didn't dry it, then put a shitload of butter in it, then turned on the heat. Well, when you do that, chicks and dudes, the water makes the oil go splatso all over your own personal face. And good old Benchmark got his bench marked, if you know what I mean. Like, when he took his apron away from his face, it looked less like a face and more like someone had stepped on a pepperoni pizza. I don't like to think about it. But that goes to show you, you know? Always dry your pans before you put oil in them, man. Especially if you're frying an egg. Want to know where I learned all this gonzo shit? I got it all done up pretty for you in Suave Rob's Double X Daring Do. The first book of Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures by J. Daniel Sawyer. Come share the awesomeness with me, my brothers, because you never know. The ass you save may be your own. Given the uh, irreverent nature of your writing, I figured that was the perfect pairing for a uh, for a commercial. Ah. Dave Robinson is the guy that narrated that. Like, He's awesome. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, before we dig into the story itself, let's take a moment where we talk about this glorious cover that you got. So that is a very unique cover. So where did you come up with this with this concept? Did you draw it for one? Uh, no, uh, I came up with a concept because it's a it's a plague mask doctor from the Middle Ages, and these guys they used to wear these actual masks. Um, 
But I contacted a guy, uh, Irish-based artist called uh, James Gwynevin, and he does these really raw, kind of uh, really um, compelling, nightmarish uh, pen and ink drawings. And I said, I just really dig your work, and would you be willing to work with me uh, on, well, first the cover, but now we're thinking about doing a graphic novel together. We'll see uh, if it pans out. But I, I'd love to do more work with James because this guy is... It's just a man, you know, as you can see that this is um, this is the stuff, a nightmare. And uh, anyone who's interested in, in dark, nightmarish pen and ink drawings, he does a lot of other stuff too, but this, I think, is his forte. You should check him out. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of those old um, black and white cover books for the ghost stories that you'd read as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, it has that vibe going for it. Now I'm curious about those masks, if they actually did anything to protect the person wearing them or if it was just superstition. Uh, highly unlikely. I mean, because, you know, we know that the, um, the vector of the plague was the flea. But I think they thought that it was in the vapors in the air. So they had these, um, you know, that, that, that kid's um, little nursery and ring a ring a rosy, a pocket full of posy. So the pocket yeah. full of posy is meant to be the stuff that will protect you, this perfume that protect you from the plague and i think they used to tuck that posy into the nose or the beak of the mask and breathe it oh. in so they were really off in their sense of what was causing the problem makes it hard to treat it but hey you gotta do what you gotta do Pretty so, cool mask. yeah it is it's a cool looking mask uh that's when, right. when a lot of people that's probably the last thing they saw that's even more gruesome i saw some people using that ironically when they were was all the controversy with COVID and the uh, and the mask policies and <clears throat> we won't get into the uh, that argument, but the fact that those were resurrected in modernity just amused me. So right. all right, right. so I, I you know we don't have to get into the politics of this either because I don't particularly want to alienate half your listenership, but it does it does feel to me like we're sliding into some kind of neo dark ages. So yeah. it's possible that. The future of fiction is actually bright because if we're if we are going into the dark ages, I think that'll be amazing for fiction. Terrible for everything else, but great for fiction. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I could see that. So, all right, but since I've got you here and we talked about politics, I've got to ask you the one political question that might alienate half the readers. Are you ready for this? Jeez. Okay, go for it. How do you feel about pineapple on pizza? Oh, um, you know. I don't think I've actually honestly tried it. My mom loves it and she's uh, done it several times, but I, I've always just gone around that particular roadblock, but maybe someday I should just live a little and try it. How do you feel? I mean, the sheltered existence so you don't have to answer. That's a very political answer and I approve. <laughs> the right answer is it's horrible, people. I don't care what Doc Saska tells you, it's horrible. It's oh. a perversion of the sacred pizza, but we'll move on <laughs> since you haven't tried it yet. <laughs> Uh, I saw the fear in your eyes. You didn't know where I was going with that question. So let's talk about uh, the book itself. So what would uh, your 30-second elevator pitch for Claiming the Wake be? This this is the single thing that I am the worst at. I'll give it a shot. i got to get better at this. Um, a guy who can't handle reality and is immersed in a fantasy world is tantalized with the possibility of living his whole life in a fantasy world and in order to do that, he has to spend a huge dollop of time in the real world, the very thing he's avoiding. I think that's it. Okay, that's good. So what do you think makes this novel special? 
it's a Frankenstein of a book. I guess a monster. It, it, it's stitched together from all these things that don't belong together. So, and I'm never, this isn't, I'm, I'm generally a fairly humble person. I don't think it's boastful to say. I've never read a book quite like this book. Um, it's, it's, it's written out of a very, very specific Irish vernacular or slang that I think is very rich and I enjoy. Um, but it moves between radically different worlds. So it keeps changing. It's almost like um, a psychedelic trip or a weird dream where you're always moving through different phases and they're all very distinct. So you can't get a handle really on, you can't get comfortable in the world because it keeps pulling the rug out from under you. Um, so that, that's the kind of experience I want to have when I'm reading or watching anything. So I, I created that for myself. And I, I still can't believe, I still can't believe that I wrote this book on some level when I'm reading, I'm like, where did this come from? You know? Yeah. The, you know you did a good job when you go back and read it later. I'm like, wow, this isn't crap. <laughs> no, yeah. So, so which like, tropes do you feel like claiming? It's not crap. Yeah, it's not crap. <laughs> so which tropes do you feel like claiming to wake hits the best? Tropes. I think, it, I, I think it's particularly good at undermining tropes. So it sets up a scenario. You think I know how this is going to play out. And then it just undermine. It keeps undermining everything. In fact, I will go so far as to say I came across this concept a few years ago. I hadn't heard the term when I was writing the book, but I think it nails what the book is, which is this concept of slipstream. And a slipstream okay. drawing. Some of your viewers will be very familiar with the concept of slipstream, but for the benefit of those who have never heard the term before, it's like something that it it, it, it seems like science fiction or fantasy but then it just veers off into the weird so that it's not even really a genre. It's more like uh, an effect, like horror or comedy is. Like it, it just alienates the world. It makes the world weirder. And its main goal is to make the world weirder, including anything that would be familiar, like any genre trappings, any tropes, it'll, it'll always twist or warp them in some way so that you, you cannot get comfortable. And so I think that that's what the book does best is that it just um, it undermines its own tropes. Okay, that, that sounds interesting. Um, is this out? And this is just me. Uh, is this out in audiobook right now, or is it just in in ebook and paperback? Right. I, I'm I'm recording the audiobook myself right now with um, this really cool uh, voiceover actor called Joshua Saxon. The book uh, moves back and forth between the VR world which is weirdly told in the second person and is written almost like poetry. And then the real world, which is the protagonist's first person experience of a very unrelentingly tough uh, physical reality. So I'm doing the protagonist voiceover and Joshua is doing the, the VR world voiceover and we're gonna merge them into um, the audiobook. So I'm still working on my part and um, it's slow going because I've never, I've never read a whole book out loud before in my life. It's a really interesting experience, and recording the audiobook is a weird experience. You become aware of all the stuff you're doing with your mouth, like all this mouth sound and smacking your lips, and it, it you become like you become like an animal when you have a microphone up close to you and you can hear all these disgusting sounds you're making. And you have to edit it all out. It's it's incredibly labor intensive. My well, respect. Was that? Anybody that lives, I said, or anybody that lives in an allergen heavy area like I do in the south where pollen is like destroying me right now, 
and oh, I yeah. listen to some of my podcasts and I'm like, oh, it's not like I'm dying, but you know, it's just, it's just one of those things. Yeah. Um, so uh, what subgenre or genres, it sounds like it'd be all over the place, but what subgenres or genres do you think Claiming Deway uh, fits into? It's, um, hmm. I think it's, um, it's, well, it's definitely dystopian sci-fi, but that in a way is kind of a backdrop. And it's more like um, a social satire and a black comedy. I think that they're the main ways of, of reading it. And I guess you could call it a coming of age story, but a coming of age story suggests that the protagonist grows up or learns something. This guy learns something, but I don't know if he's necessarily maturing. I, I think he's he's just warping as he goes through the, the world more than becoming a real man or something like that. It, it's That's not the trajectory of the book. Okay. So and now let's talk about the story itself. What can you tell us about the main character and what do you think makes them unique in the crowded field of speculative fiction? I, I think the main thing that distinguishes him is his voice. And on a superficial level, that's just the dialect that he speaks. Um, similarly to, I don't know if, if your uh, viewers or listeners are familiar with train spotting, but one of the things that set Irvine Welch's world apart and Renton, his, his narrator apart, was um, a pretty, a, you know, acute ear for a Scottish dialect and, and a, you know, a very unique way of being in the world because he's this Scottish working class guy. And, um, I love that. Like I, I was, I read Train Spotting in '96 when I was just starting college, and um, it made a deep impression on me. And so, like, I, I'm not claiming I'm like Irvine Welch, but I definitely have a sense that um, the language of the narrator has a huge impact on the reality of the book. So Alex Delarge in Clockwork Orange is speaking this weird patois language that Anthony Burgess just generated. Again, he was a student of Finnegan's Wake. And he created this like almost artificial language that created a world and a worldview. And I think that that's something that this book does. It, um, Tato, that's the name of my protagonist, he speaks in a kind of weird language that generates a reality around it. Okay. So were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable for you in this, uh, in this book? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess hearkening back to my kind of cartoonist days, he's got a VR butler that's like a cartoon rabbit and he's constantly nagging him about things he needs to do to look after his actual physical body. It's like constantly reminding him to get enough vitamin D by going outside and uh, eating his vegetables and remembering to do some exercise. And he really hates this rabbit, but he can't get rid of it. So I don't know why, but I have a soft spot for that rabbit because I kind of feel like that's me to my kids now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and there's this other character called he's just called a fop and he's this ludicrously vain but vaguely menacing character again another caricature or kind of like a cartoonish character but uh he's just nightmarish and enigmatic enough that i i find myself revisiting him and going where did this guy come from so when you wrote the rabbit butler was there any um any of that that was an homage to Alice in Wonderland and the rabbit there? Definitely. I, I, I'd be amazed if there wasn't. I don't think I was consciously thinking, oh, I've got a allude to Lewis and Carol, Lewis Carroll, but I, um, 
I definitely think that that's that's there, definitely. And you so know, it's funny, Lewis Carroll, as you probably know, was a professor, uh, a university professor at uh, Oxford. He taught logic, and um, the rabbit is constantly worried that he's late. And the only recurring dream that I have is that I'm late to teach a class. So <laughs> I think that's Lewis Carroll. I get that. So um, does your story have a bad guy or is just the universe the bad guy in this novel? Obviously, no spoilers. Yeah. Um, primarily, the universe is the bad guy. Um, the wake is the real world and claiming. When I was a kid, uh, if someone said they claimed you, it means they were challenging you to a fight. It's like, I claim you. I claim you after school. And that means we're going to fight. That's what's going to happen next. So it's about this guy learning to stand up to the bully. That is physical reality, like the inevitability of aging and death and all these other things. And um, But there are like these characters in it that are fairly um, antagonistic. But I think what I like about the book is all of the guys that are opposing him, that he hates, uh, they all think they're the good guy. They all think they're helping or they all think they're doing the right thing. Okay. So the claiming you language that you were mentioning, like that's not something that as an American, I would have heard and known that's what that meant. So yeah. is the average, you know, non-Irish reader going to be able to read this and discern what you're talking about or how much of this is insider baseball on your writing style? Do you think? Yeah. Um, I, I'm hoping because I, I, the main people I've shared this book with are all Americans. Okay. Uh, I shared it with a small coterie of uh Irish uh, beta readers that were buddies from school, but mainly uh, it's uh, I, I've shared it with American writers, and uh, they've I am hoping that what I, by setting up the context just right every time I introduce a term, context explains what the term means. So anyone who's like paying attention will be able to follow the book. No one's going to be like, oh, he's use, just using these terms, and I have like no idea what he's talking about, um, or certainly no, nobody said that. Nobody, no American that I shared it with said that, but it's possible people will read it and, and and not be able to figure out exactly what every single word means. But in a way, that could be fun too, you know. Like just let go of your parochialism for a little while and just be a little lost, you know. When you go to a foreign country, you don't know what everything means. It's kind of interesting, no? Yeah, I, I get that. That was. Um... The biggest culture shock, even when I was talking to people in English, uh, when I was deployed overseas, because, you know, we had we, we you know, worked with uh, Australians, with people from the UK, with, you know, New Zealanders, people that were speaking English when it was their second language from South America. Like it, it, and then, you know, some of the, the um, uh, I want to call them mercenaries because they were more contractors, but essentially they're mercenaries from South Africa. And, and all of us were speaking English, but none of us were speaking the same language. Yeah. And so, I, remember, was it, I can't remember if it was Wilde or Churchill or someone else. You're a history buff, maybe you can tell me. But it was uh, something like America and England were divided by a common language. Um, I, I've heard the expression before. Uh, I had a friend of mine that's uh, it's another author from, from Australia, and he's used that for before too. Yeah. Um, but I'm... I'm not sure who said that first. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's so quoted that it would be. Yeah, be what's the uh, yeah. go, Quick Google search says George Bernard Shaw. Ah, so, an Irish. 
Yeah. So uh, speaking of characters, you know, as authors, we put our characters through horrific situations and do horrible things to them and their families. So if yours met you in a uh, dark alley, how do you see that playing out for you after the hell you've put him through? Oh my God, he'd be so pissed off. <laughs> He's so pissed. I am such a vicious God, you know? I, I've done such horrible. It's unrelenting. Like everything goes wrong for him constantly. It's it's a nonstop cavalcade of challenges. But um, you know, I'd like to think he'd forgive me because uh, I also gave him I I gave him a world that he could help figure out himself in. So hopefully he wouldn't be too angry. But he definitely would off. Yeah. So, you know, we normally, um, because you're an academic, you know, you studied literature from the more, I don't want to say highbrow because that sounds insulting, but like you've, you've looked at it from sort of an academic perspective. So when you write, given your background, do you tend to think in terms of character archetypes when you write? That's a good question. Do you know what? It's a funny thing. Uh, when I was uh, about 16, I kind of dropped out of school because I really... I, really, I can't emphasize enough how much I didn't like going to school. And for a year, I just, um, I, I, I said I wanted to train a sheepdog. I wanted to learn gymnastics and I wanted to learn how to play the piano. I did all three things. And at the end of that year, uh, my mom said, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be a writer. She said, what do you think you need to do to become a writer? I said, I had no idea. I suspect I'll go to university and study philosophy and English. Maybe that'll help. So I went and I studied it. And what you learn when you study formally, study literature is you you study these things like themes and literary theories and all these other things and they're wonderful but it's it's kind of like it's analogous to studying the history of architecture and you don't know how to even build a chair or a table like you don't know how to work yeah. with wood or tools so like being a writer is really really different because when it comes time to put something together and assemble it all of that theory is I wouldn't say it's completely unhelpful, but it's it's very the ten it's a very tenuous connection between the academic background, which is really like training how to read and find layers of meaning versus how to make a thing that works. So I'm not saying my academic training was unhelpful or got in the way, but it was it's definitely like a really unrelated compartment of my mind compared to the act of sitting down at a table and emotionally overcoming your resistance to writing. And then you start writing and you can't tell if it's any good and you get that anxiety. And then maybe you write something and you think, Oh, it's kind of good, but you, you're not sure you have to find someone to show it to like all of that. So nuts and boltsy. It's, it just seems really unrelated to the academic world. I hope I'm answering your question here. I'm not trying to. No, no, you are. I remember when I took, um, English lit because you know, before my deployment, this the second one, I was going to, to school and I was a triple major English history and political science. Uh, and, and I remember vaguely my uh, vividly my professor, my advisor on the history side, telling me that that wasn't commendable. It was just a failure to commit. Uh, so, <laughs> but but one of the things we did in the English class is we accepted like they one of the things they taught us was, you know, like the famous Robert Frost about the um, the road less traveled. And they're like giving it all this existential meaning. And, you know, it was about, you know, the, and they interviewed him about that while he was still alive. 
He's like, no, I literally was just going for a walk in the woods and he decided to take the path where nobody had walked through. So the snow was fresh and pretty. And so there's this idea in academia, um, at least as I was taught it, where even if the writer didn't know that they were writing it, they were subconsciously writing meaning into it. And they, they go from there as sort of, you know, they look for meaning in it. And so I, I found that I've actually talked to some modern authors about that theory. And they've like, no, that's so insulting to me as the creator. And so that came to my conclusion from that is at a certain point in time, you write it, you publish it, you turn it into the wilds for the readers, and then it belongs to them and they can take what they want to it from it. And, and it's its own thing. You yeah. Know? This actually has a lot of uh, literary theory grew out of people disputing over things like uh, the constitution, right? Like yeah. do the, do framers get to decide what the constitution really means and we have to like guess at what they meant or can we just say it doesn't matter what they meant it's a living document and we can figure it out as we go along it's up to us the readers to figure out what the constitution means so it's weird like a lot of you might think this is very abstruse and abstract academic stuff but it has real world consequences like if you think the constitution means what the framers meant it to mean that's a very different model of reality to the constitution means whatever we can interpret it to mean those are incompatible uh, ways yeah. of reading, you know, and and uh, that's where the rubber hits the road, really, when it comes to reading theory. And I actually think that that's what um, the university is particularly good at. It's for training people how to not just how to read, but thinking about different ways people read, because that's really interesting. So I I had a professor in college tell me that he's like when we were talking about that exact argument, he mentioned the founders, the um, strict. Um, interpretationalist versus the living document crowd. And there's a name for the people that inherit it, uh, read it strictly as it was written. Um, it's actually a, um, got turned like a, it's got significance in the legal field, but he said, it's like, you know, you're going to a book club and everybody's invited and you're having the discussion, but side A read one book and side B read the other. And they're talking at each other and not realizing they're not talking about the same thing. And he said, that's where you, as someone who might desire to create content someday, have to build that bridge so those two sides can talk to each other. More and more so. That's that's profoundly true. Like, I'm really, I love America. I'm an immigrant and, I, and I'm a naturalized citizen and my kids are American and I want America to continue to flourish. And I'm really concerned that an inability for us to read each other is, is causing some sort of schism in this fabric of space time. It's like ripping the fabric of the country apart. So we need more translators of different value systems and we need more like people who can help uh, the other side read what the other side means so that we get less less hysterical, quite frankly. I think the, uh, well, you know, my answer to that, and I actually have one, is very political, so we'll just move on. So neither one of us alienate half the, uh, half the country. <laughs> so what you've told us a little bit about the main character and some of the secondary characters and that rabbit sounds funny. I, I'd almost like to read that as a graphic novel just to see how that would look. Um, but what can you tell us about the universe itself? In many ways, like the worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist and the antagonist. So what is what is going on in this world? Is it is it modern world with just like differences? Like what's what's going on in the world itself? Yeah, well, so the, the novel is set at the tail end of a pandemic. So the pandemic is receding. It's a, it's a very bad pandemic. It's not it's not COVID-19. It's a, it's basically another Black Death, and uh, a lot of people have died. But the world is moving on, and 
a, a section of the public has developed a fairly significant level of disaffectedness. They've just withdrawn into VR technology and many have developed a kind of form of agoraphobia. So they're like really, really legitimately scared of the physical world. And my protagonist is, is basically one of them. So he's, because the, the bulk of the book is first person, we get his jaundiced view of everything. And his view of everything is that it's fundamentally malevolent. But if you read between the lines, you start to figure out there's an awful lot of beauty hidden in his reality that he's either missing or skipping over. And he unintentionally lapses into pretty poetic descriptions of his world. It's just that it happens to be a dark, malevolent, evil poetry, but it's poetry nonetheless. And uh, I guess that's my favorite part about the book is that he's surrounded by fascinating reality and he's just reading it through this uh, scream of fear. But there's a lot more going on than just fearful stuff. It's just that that's what he sees. So he's an unreliable narrator at the first person level. Yeah, he, this is yeah, that's a good way of putting it because he's sort of unreliable and he's also telling you exactly what's happening. So he's he's not making anything up, but he's just missing a bunch of stuff that um as traumatized people tend to do is that they just they will read for threat first and foremost and that's what he does. So we talked a little bit about this in the pre-show, and you mentioned that your brother is actually a, uh, is a psychiatrist. He works with people with trauma. How much of, you know, just having him in the family and talking to him about things, do you think affected, like, the way you portrayed your main character? That's a good question. I, yeah, I should say specifically he's a cognitive behavioral therapist, and um, although he has trained in psychodynamic stuff too, so you know, he can do the, the classic tell me about your mother questions, but... Um, <laughs> Very Freudian of him. <laughs> he primarily works with, uh, uh, I think, uh, military veterans and refugees and, and people that have suffered PTSD. So, um, yeah, my, my conversations with my brother have absolutely informed my view of how um, damaged individuals can kind of remodel their reality to confirm their worst fears about that reality. And I think that a big part about that book is I'm not going to say that he... You see, he never he never gets any proper treatment, so he's just kind of self-medicating with the virtual reality. That's why he's chasing this dream so hard, this possibility that he could live in an artificial world forever and forget about his body, and that the book kind of rejects that as a valid premise. I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that. Okay. So is Claiming to Wake a part of a series, or is it a standalone story? Uh, I think it's a standalone story, but I... It, the ending is such that it is possible that a sequel could be written. So I'm not saying, never say never, but uh, my sense is that I would like to take elements of this world and repurpose them for another novel, but I don't necessarily know if I'll return to this particular protagonist. So even if... So so someone who's reading this doesn't have to worry about they're going to be left hanging, of you know, because some of the the authors that start series and they're really good. They don't close any loops because there's going to be a book two that never happens. So they'll get a satisfactory ending at this novel, whether there's follow on novels or not. That's yeah. Well, hmm. the ending is such that people, Oh my God, it sounds like I'm speaking in riddles. <laughs> people that like this kind of ending will love it. And people that don't like, uh, ambiguous endings will, will really not. 
Okay. I mean, I think you answered the question. So we know that every literary universe has their own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic. So what sort of tech can we expect in this novel? Um, because it's kind of a slipstream novel, and I really like this premise, which is you set up a science fiction you can see. VR is really important in this world. But then you mess with the conceit because he spends the bulk of the novel just trying to get to a better form of VR. And so the main VR science fiction conceit is absent for the bulk of the book because he's trying to chase the better version. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess in a nutshell, there, there's a few little ideas that I came up for, little peripheral ideas, but the main thing is what a potential VR world could be like. Um, the next three or four generations of VR down the road. And um, yeah, that's it. That's the main thing. Okay. Um, so if you could go into the VR reality that, that the main character inhabits, would you? Uh, I Here's the thing. I have something of uh, an addictive personality. So I almost certainly would, and then I would regret it because I would I would get addicted instantly. Like okay. the world that he is inhabiting is just it seems fan so fantastic to me. I don't know how I would have real difficulty pulling back out of it. Actually, I remember reading um speaking of epic poetry, the the lotus eaters where Odysseus ends up on this island and all of his crew start eating the lotus and it's the perfect drug and they love it. And he actually has to whip them back onto the ship to get them back on their mission. I think I need someone there to like whip me back out of the VR world. Okay, that's fair, that's fair. So of all the tech that you invented for this world, the slipstream, the VR, um, as immersive as it is, uh, which would you want for your daily life? I'm, I'm already addicted to my phone. Like the idea that there's a <laughs> thing waiting around the corner terrifies me and, and also my, my kids I mean my god what world are they entering into um so I kind of write it's simultaneously a fantasy and a nightmare you know okay that's a that's a fair answer so does your universe have aliens or fantastical uh, creatures in it uh well the VR world does and it's full of them but the the what I like about the book is that when it comes out into the quote-unquote real world, the people in there have uh, animalistic and alien-like qualities that surpass the stuff that's in the VR world. Okay. So, in like a figurative sense. Okay. So given that you have written some, you know, fantastical creatures, when you when you write them, do you let you know nature inspire you? Are you inspired by your nightmares, uh, ancient lore and myth? Like, how do you go about creating these these beings? Um, yeah, some combination of ancient mythology, fairy tale, and nightmare. The composite of those things, and I think that they're all they're all deeply interrelated. Um, that that that's that's the driving force behind. The fiction I write and the fiction I hope to write in the future, which is, um, yeah, I like my nightmares. I love having nightmares. I don't think I've ever remembered a dream, so I don't know. I mean, I imagine I have them, but, you know, <laughs> don't remember yeah. them in the morning. I remember 
I don't just remember my dreams, but my dreams have like three act structures and arcs and like characters that evolve. And I wake uh, up. Only other, it's like the now. Only other, the only other person I've heard describe their dreams like that is Brandon Sanderson on his uh, his non writing podcast where he just you know riffs off with his friend. Um, I think it's something cliche like we haven't named the podcast yet kind of thing for the name of his podcast but yeah i, I just that fascinates me because i've never had that experience uh so it's that's interesting and i imagine the opposite is probably true for you it's like what's that like never to remember your dreams <laughs> uh, you, um, i heard that thomas edison you know used to put these ball bearings in his hand and he would fall asleep because he knew that if he could wake himself up when, when you start dreaming you go into a kind of paralysis and he would drop the ball bearings. They'd make a clatter into a bucket and wake him up in the middle of a dream. And he would use the REM state to solve lateral thinking problems. Interesting. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been at this for a little bit. So clearly the interview is winding down. But before we wrap this up, was there anything about claiming to wake that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us before we move on? Hmm. I don't know if this is important to the readers who are listening to the podcast, but uh, it's it's a deeply personal book for me because I really think it's stitched together from every little element of my subconscious. And I've never made anything quite like this before. And I don't see many things out there that are like this. So I I don't know if that's a compelling reason to read the book, but I think it's a good enough reason to at least check it out that's that's all i would say it's okay. a very honest. so for those interested in checking it out what would you say because we have some people that listen that actually listen with their kids uh, their kids are voracious and precocious readers but they're also still kids so what would you say the age range for this novel would be for your for your target audience it's definitely and i regret this looking back on it there's a lot of uh, profanity because I just think that, that that's that's right for this character. But I know that um, profanity is more striking in America. Like I, I think that generally speaking, I think people swear a lot less here. That's my really? sense. Really? Yeah, okay. Maybe, I don't know. In, in working class and rural Ireland, uh, I think that the swearing is a very kind of common way of, of interacting. Maybe it's the case in a, a lot of working class communities in America too, but there's just the sense that once it's on the page, it should be dialed down. And um, and I and I let a lot of profanity in the book. So if you have young kids, I would say, unfortunately, it's probably not for them, unless you don't care about them being exposed to that. Um, maybe, maybe someday I'll release a, a cleaned up edited version, but something tells me that would neuter it in some way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, that's fair. That's fair. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. Cause I grew up in the military, like as a military brat then I did the army thing myself. So I, I never quite know how much of my experience is the quote common American experience and how much of that is I lived in a bubble because I yeah. lived around, you know, the military and we cuss a lot, a lot more. Like I, I remember coming home from the army and my mom constantly giving me the look cause I was dropping the F bombs. Cause you just didn't even think about it. Yeah. You know, having to learn to speak again, if it were, you know, as it were. So you, you never know. But okay. So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part 
and uh, and help move this along. So, um, Colm, can you tell listeners how they can find you? Uh, yeah, I mean, predominantly be through my website, colmoshay.com. There's a way of uh, emailing me there. And uh, I have, uh, I think it's linked in the show notes, but I have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. And um, that's pretty much it, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a, by 21st century standards, I'm something of a recluse, I guess. I don't have too many channels through which you can meet me. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm right there with you. Like, I grew up where everyone was paranoid about the government spying on them. And now we are like, hey, spy on me harder, please. As you, you know, <laughs> add the, the Alexa and the Google and, and all the listening. Yeah, to, like, specifically oh. enough to me, you need to read my emails. <laughs> right, right. So the, uh, you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the light on or you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again that's buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section for the podcast and i promise i will keep my co-hosts doc seska and nick garber duly intoxicated they will drink until their liver surrenders but uh without further ado we thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for nick garber and doc seska i am jr hanley and this was the blasters and blades podcast we'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes and all things that go boom. So thank you for coming by, Colin. We'll definitely have to have you back. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. It's been a pleasure.